right, so I had I had one tooth removed on one side of my mouth and one on the other, which is preventing me. I'm a side sleeper, so that's preventing me sleep and and eating activities. Uh, it should be a fun show as my mouth's swollen on both sides. Very good for talking about movies. How how is your history with with dental health? Have, do you generally have good dental health, or is this is this been like a recurring thing? I'd say like years in addiction stuff, probably not uh, top tier. <laughs> uh, lots probably, of, probably not. Lots of years on like speed, which is really bad for your teeth. A lot of a lot of amphetamine <laughs> and uh, uppers are very bad for your teeth. So uh, uh, mixed with a constant stream of alcohol, not very good. Um, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't sound like it. Uh, on the opposite end of things, I I have great dental health. Congrats easy. on that. I, I'm getting there. Um, I just have I've, holes I've, in my teeth now. I've I've never had a cavity in my life. Uh, I had corrective braces growing up, and uh, I still have some metal on my bottom jaw that helps kind of keep them in place. They say I could take them out whenever I want, but uh, removing the concrete sounds painful and yeah. annoying, and uh, I'm just too lazy. I haven't even been to to a dentist in over a year because covid stuff and uh moving to a new city and and just not establishing myself at a proper place and 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 my my current insurance doesn't cover regular cleaning uh which is really annoying to find out so that's how you get uh that's how you lose track of your dental health is once you get off your parents insurance and then you're like oh i have to pay for that now oh absolutely so yeah the, the american health system is really great um yeah you know they 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 cover Everything, just exactly what you need, and nothing more. Well, the good uh, news, either totally disposable. The good news is, that, um, I've been pretty laid out for a few days, but it happened to be just at the same time that E3 was running. Um, I guess I have a long history of E3. I was, I was in the video game press industry for over twelve years. I had a, um, I had written long before that, and I had followed all of this since like 1995, the beginnings of like E3 and everything. So I've been to three or four of them. Um, I have experience <laughs> uh, what these could be like. Um, this year, not even an actual expo. It's all online streams. Um, E3 has been uh, contained into individual companies doing what they do every month anyway. Um, so that's, <laughs> a, that's an interesting change. And I'd say the only two that really brought anything that seems different from their uh, par for course would be Nintendo and Microsoft. I just, uh, I woke up this morning uh, having ignored most of the E3 news mm-hmm. and uh, was just prompted to watch the Nintendo one. Uh, and I did. And I was uh, surprised by it as I usually am. I think they always manage to, to dig out something unexpected in their announcements and get people hyped up. Uh, very, very rarely do they disappoint across the board. I guess my best memories from E3 were like going and seeing Miyamoto on stage in person and, uh, you know, going and getting to meet people at Nintendo and go, uh, um, the, the Skyward Sword one was a big uh, reveal. There was a, what else? A Pikmin was big for me that, that Pikmin year, because I got to go meet people from Platinum because they have wonderful 101 premiering next to it. And Platinum, always one of my favorite devs, um, I, I think I missed like the meetings and the people of it all, even with like film. Well, I, you know, I review every movie as though I'm, I want the person who makes the movie to read it and be like, yeah, I understand where they're coming from at least. Even if I give it two out of 10, I want them to be like, yeah, maybe that part was, you know, bad. I, I, I like the personal perspective and, and approaching things like humans make things. I, I think I that's do... missing in uh, video game industry press. I, I think they 
treat these creations like they're machines, like they're machines designed by computers, not like a human on a computer, like not a human team, you know? Mm -hmm. So I like that aspect that I feel is really missing from the C3, which is all video. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think, you know, product of the the last year of lockdowns and stuff and still kind of, of being in the midst of it, uh, which is a shame. You know, I, I think last week I announced that I might be going to a movie this this week and going out to the theater for the first time. Are you? Uh, I didn't because oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, even though I had a screening in mind, finally, it was for last night and uh, I forgot about it in, um, until just then, but I still had to watch our movie for the week. And I said, shit, well... Um, I can't really go then yeah. <laughs> unless you wanted to pivot, but uh, the, the, the theater was sold out anyway, so it didn't matter. But I was, I was sad that I uh, neglected my opportunity to go back out in the world. I guess, I guess <laughs> next time. <laughs> the other thing I've been doing, I, I'm very glad that I've been laid out these three days because Tribeca and E3 started the same day. Um, so wow. I've, uh, I've also been cramming screeners into all times that don't have press conferences. And I've watched wow. all of E3. I've watched, all of Tribeca, I'm very accomplished in my uh, uh, dental recovery. Can Can you give us any kind of like meter on how Tribeca's going without giving away any of the spoilers or anything? And we'll go into depth next week. I'd say that my first eight showings were very. Uh, <laughs> uh, I I think they were very also impacted by COVID. I think a, <laughs> a lot of um, festival staff has been undercut. Um, I've seen this experience time and time again now where uh, there aren't people to answer your questions. They answer with like canned automatic responses. And I think an online festival requires even doubly the user support that you need in person. We need very little support to go sit in a theater. I think when everyone has their own online things going and everything that could possibly go wrong um, and studios trying to control whether or not you could watch their movies. I think there's a lot of things where we need a lot more support and there's, um, they're understaffed and they're cutting staff for these things. So um, I, I I feel for what they're going through. Um, I know some like press have kind of stepped out of it and I, I feel like that's kind of babyish. Um, I, think <laughs> you should, uh, I think you should just, you know, press up and get in there and uh, do your press shit anyway, because uh, I think part of our thing is a discovery and uh, telling people about things. It's not that we're excited for things and we're going to go see them. We have to create excitement because uh most of these movies, only five people have seen, you know, who made right. them. Well, as, as the kind of reviewers or the first line there, people get to see them. You're essentially the the curators for, right. for for everyone else, you know, like kind of gauging what's worth seeing and kind of putting out the, the word there, at least. And, and at least trying to make it easier, putting out more publicity about these films. That's what those initial, you know, uh, festival screenings are kind of all about. So if it's like, you know, I don't think you can necessarily just expect everything to be handed to you on a silver platter, you know, like, you know, part of your work is, is kind of going out of your way to, to find films and then, you know, put the word out about them. So, yeah, uh, but un understandably, when there's so many kind of technical complications as well, yeah. it can be discouraging. Certainly, it's and not hard to see. I'd say I've never had the experience where things were added to PNI and so often taken off. And uh, it's in this festival, it's the case that it's always the big film. So I understand people's frustration, but uh, reach out and do your job and, and start emailing people. And, you know, I mean, there, there's other ways around these things. So, yeah, yeah. You're, you're, you're much better at this, I will say, than a lot of people, including <laughs> myself. Yeah. Uh, whenever I, I have to get screeners for everything, I just I, I even ask you, I'm like, 
how do you think this is a good email I should compose? Should I send it like this? Like, am I doing this right? And you're like, yeah, it's fine. Just, just send whatever. And I'm like, okay, okay, I'll do it. Like I said, I have over 12 years in video games, which is a very hard uh, press industry where you really learn uh, how PR works and you learn how to get things, I guess, in video games. Uh, Cause you have to ask for everything. Uh, nobody will hand you any video game just for the fun of it. I, I, I much prefer this cycle, by the way. Um, I'd much rather review movies. Uh, I, I don't even know if I've talked about it, but I, I really stopped doing Gamer Press once uh, Gamergate happened. And oh. <laughs> just the ideas about ethics and journalism. It's, it's a good even, time to stop. <laughs> yeah. Even like that crutch for what people were arguing about was dirty to me in a way that I couldn't morally say. I mean, I was all about journalism, ethics, and I was in like all these ethics classes. I was like, this is what I really want to do. And when people started making those arguments, I'm like, uh, well, this has become an ethical problem for me. You saying it's about ethics uh, actually became the problem for me. Um, uh, in a way, I, I couldn't be press anymore. I, I couldn't, with a good heart, cover games and, and not cover this more important thing that was happening, which I didn't want to cover. Um, so I, I'm glad to be out at that point. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's nice to have you here on the, the film side of things, the, the true art of the world, as some <laughs> might say. <laughs> and uh, you know what people say? who are the truest artists are is a uh, Pixar. Everyone says that. Yeah. Uh, Pixar, obviously the uh, preeminent artists of our day, um, ch- constantly churning out fresh, vibrant, new, innovative uh, works of the medium, far mm-hmm. uh, pacing everyone and certainly not caught in any kind of uh, rut of creativity as, as uh, some of the haters have lobbied <laughs> against them. I would say within the last year, they've they've tried their damnedest to disprove it, right? Like I, I feel like their their move after Toy Story four was new, you know, new IPs, new uh, new ideas. I do. I feel like we're still talking video games in a way. I, I feel like they're uh, sequelized and they became a, you know, a studio that did the expected. Um, I think the two things that people always say about Pixar is that. Um, uh, it's a movie about feelings where X feels something or uh, can you make, you know, can you make this uh, thing, this yeah. feel or monsters feel or can you make emotions or, or feel? feelings feel yeah, yeah. even in the case of some movies. Right. That's really inventive. Oh, <laughs> I think the other thing is that all Pixar humans look the same, um, that, yeah. that they have that generic thing. There's a there's a voila app going around this week. Uh, the Instagram trend of the week, <laughs> it, it processes your face through four different features and turns you into a Pixar character. And I think that shows you how reductive and how realistic but uh, also uninteresting that art style is if an app could do that and make it look like a pixar character i just don't think that's that interesting i i, I did see that going around you did. and okay yeah my my favorite was this isn't going to mean much to anyone but okay. my favorite uh i saw was somebody pixard uh the the united states uh politician john c <laughs> calhoun who who uh operated in the uh kind of mid 1800s <laughs> Uh, and, and he was I just sent you a picture of him okay uh, uh, he's he's a very scary looking <laughs> dude and uh, I'll see if I can find the Pixar one as well but uh, it'll just the, be the our idea... episode art so people can see it <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't see it when just googling immediately I'd have okay. to go dig for it but he was Pixar up and uh, he's a he's a scary looking dude and he was kind of super fucking evil. Dude loved slavery. Super oh, yeah. big proponent of slavery and states' rights. So kind of like having that connotation and that look, which, which you just saw there and seeing it all cartoonied, 
was very Sounds funny. Hilarious. It was very funny to me. That I was in a John Wayne group and they kept doing John Wayne oh. and the the John Wayne fan base was getting very upset because of course they first, were because, yeah. because they have tiny <laughs> because first it first it makes you all blushy and then it makes you look like you know a little bit pensive and that gives you like a cute like crown like puckered look um i think it's a i think it's a nice thing to do with john wayne but uh, the community didn't feel the same way as me um, i think i think he'd appreciate it john wayne seems like the kind of guy who is very secure in his yeah. his image of himself and wouldn't it all be threatened by by such a thing that's fun I, that that is funny to me that uh they would do that it was a great great choice to pixar pick pixar afi pixar pixar afi yeah uh, I I, i'd word. say that the thing about luca is that it doesn't do either of those two things that pixar is always criticized for oh it's not always <laughs> a feeling a movie about feelings and emotions eventually it is i mean every movie has emotion right i mean Every movie is an empathy machine, as uh, Roger Ebert uh, famously called it. Um, there's a every every movie has an emotional center to it. You could feel something, so it gets there. But I I wouldn't say that's the whole premise. Uh, it's a and uh, the faces are oblong. Uh, people have funny mustaches. Um, okay, so it's about a boy who lives underwater, and uh, he's a fish. Anytime that he's underwater, I thought it would have been like a boy on land, and sometimes he goes under. No, uh, he lives underwater, and that's like his domain. And he has this Italian city just uh, outside, um, and his parents just want to keep him underwater. But uh, he meets a new friend, and they so, start sounds like the Little Mermaid so far. Very Little Mermaid vibes. Yeah, they start like journeying out into the city, and uh, yeah, I'd say touches the Little Mermaid. He collects like the artifacts of the human world underwater, and uh, he meets up with this boy, and he has this poster that says a uh, Vespa means freedom. Um, so the boy's goal becomes uh, they want to build a Vespa. They want to figure out how to get a Vespa. And that's like the driving action. I like that it's like a kind of taut and a more, you know, very specific, but also. A, it, it sounds it, like a, another aspect of Pixar lately where they're like fixating on certain cultural elements. Right. And then just yeah. like centering everything around that, which. You, you might say is kind of mixed in success as, as of recently and that they it's just like, kind of put put all their eggs on this idea of kind yeah. of like representation or, or or visualization of specific cultures and mixed feelings i i mean coco is my favorite pixar so right that, right I, well and something I like a... i think something like moana is very yeah. effective as as That's well Disney, but though. yeah uh no uh, no it's I guess that is Disney. Isn't yeah. it? Ah, you're right. Um, so, well, well, it's it's like a broader thing. Is it's a Disney, Disney thing. as well? Yeah. yeah, and and Pixar falls into that camp, likewise. That but, has uh, been their Disneyfication. Is that um, that representation being a, a, a primary element since Inside Out? They they kind of had that kind of forced into their movies. I felt, uh, but but Italian's good. We we don't really have a Italian animation movie about boys who turn into mermaids when they're wet. So. Um, about Vespas. Uh, Vespa well, means freedom. Were we asking for one? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I think it's pretty obvious what's going to happen because the boys, uh, the town hates these mo sea monsters. Uh, I guess they're not mermaids, they're sea monsters. Uh, and the town really hates them and they're out to hunt them. And so it is about like otherness and accepting differences. And they're, you know, you know the vibes going through like the Italian boy friendship movies right now, like the Call Me by Your Nameness and the Oh, the, oh, is it, know, is it? It has the summer vibes, I would say. It has that um, 
summery Italian uh, vacation aesthetic. Uh, I wouldn't say it has the other vibes that that movie has, but um, it has those vibes. Uh, but but it's obvious. Maybe it would be better out. if it did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I uh, would be really bold of Pixar. Cowards, where's my gay mermaid movie? They should do a. They should do a more gay movie. I hope they do. Um, there's they a. There's a thing where when it's raining, the boys, of course, turn back into mermaids. So I had it in my head the whole time that that's going to be the climactic scene, and it was. Um, it's really hard for me to talk. Uh, it was. Right. Uh, uh, there was a. There's just a feeling that it's like a straight line. Um, I think Saul has a lot of detours. Of course, like Saul when the guy dies um, and they go into that like alternate reality. But uh, Luca, just a straight fucking line. And uh, what was there one before uh, Saul? Onward, that, uh, onward, onward. Yeah, yeah, that one not so much a straight line either. Uh, but it, it's closer to onward, I think, in quality and in uh, in spirit. If, if I remember right, Onward wasn't one that you were such a fan of. And people in general weren't uh, as big on it. And it also kind of yeah. got uh, like this weird release because of the kind of came right at the beginning of the pandemic and stuff. And so that kind of messed things up. Um, but yeah, like it sounding from your description so far, like this is on the the good lesser lesser end of, of the Pixar scale. Maybe, maybe like, above Onward, below, like well, well below Coco. Um. Mm-hmm. Well below uh, Insido, well below Ratatouille. Uh, yeah, that, yeah that's like, not that's not very encouraging. <laughs> I'd say yeah, yeah, but my Pixar scale is high, right? I don't have like sure. a lot of downward trends where I'm uh, that concerned. I love like I love even like the middle tier. I love the Good Look, Dinosaur. I'm a huge advocate. Yeah, but how do you feel about Cars Three? I well, as our new friend Jack says. Uh, <laughs> Cars 1 makes Cars 2 look like Cars 3. So uh, uh, props to our friend Jack. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I feel like that's the best description of those. I, I've seen Cars and I've seen Cars 3. I haven't seen Cars 2. So I, can't. I, 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 saw, I saw Cars 1 and 2 when I was younger. I remember enjoying the first one again, but like I was a child. So I don't know how that would hold up nowadays. Uh, and the, the second one has Eddie Izzard as a villain, which is great in any context. Okay. So. Uh, I don't have a I don't have like older experience with those. Those are very recent for me that I watched the first and the third cars. Well, really I'm I'm sorry I'm a baby, Calvin. <laughs> all right. I can't control when I shot out of the womb. Uh it's just that's what I saw when I was that age. That's that's the case. I'm <laughs> I I didn't always have Pixar, right? Like they kind of came when I was at the right age where I was like, you know, like six or seven, maybe Toy Story came out. Need- uh, so Maybe I am too old for. Well, some of well this. I think I think sometime we're gonna have to do a Toy Story podcast because have I haven't watched it. Pixar. I have to. I haven't watched it in a long, long time. But that has been like one of my favorite animated movies, at least in my memory. Mm-hmm. It really kind of like had this defining effect on my my childhood. And we can have a big like brawling debate about which Toy Story movie is the best because everyone's got a different answer. They do. <laughs> and, I think that's the genius you know of what? Pixar I, too. I don't think it's necessarily wrong unless your answer is Toy Story 3. Then you're just lying to yourself. Mm. <laughs> uh, more will be revealed. <laughs> I don't know because I, I might have to go back and watch them all. I keep changing my answer too is another thing. Uh, it's whatever one I watch always seems to go up my ranking in it's, some way. 
it's got a special relationship with us who kind of grew up with those films. And again, I think the reason Toy Story 3 resonated with so many people was because it came right at that, that specific time. Like there was like an 11 year time gap. And it's like, now we're all adults and we're reflecting and the, like the themes of the film are aligning with these ideas of us moving on from our childhoods and stuff. And it's like, and you got that ending scene where Andy's giving away the toys and it's like, everyone cried giant, you know, tears because they were feeling like those same feelings, but it's, as a movie you know it's not as as cleanly made it's not as well written it retreads a lot of the same material and so i think it's it's big time nostalgia goggles for anyone who's uh saying that it's the best one again it's not that it's not a good film it is it's just not the best of the toy story films i think by any metric we'll definitely have to get to one because i want to have that full discussion and yeah really sorry do sorry for a toy story tangent uh <laughs> tirade there toy story tirade tangent tirade my mouth hurts um <laughs> we that should be a segment we'll, we'll get to it yeah let me let me take over for you for a little bit here yeah uh, please oh wait uh luca so i like it my wife likes it more uh Ezra loves it, so there, there's something there, and I'll I may review it. We'll see. There, there you've got the entire Kemp household uh, metric there for you. <laughs> Yager thinks it's you. okay. Uh, my dog. <laughs> he he enjoyed it. He barked a few times. <laughs> yeah, he did. Okay, go ahead. Uh, all right, all right. So it's time after what's well, a two week hiatus for the return of David's documentary discourse. I'm I'm back to talk about actual documentaries now because. I ran out of new movies, uh, new old movies to talk about. <laughs> uh, this week, uh, I'm capitalizing on the the niche genre of uh, musical biography. You know, music mm-hmm. uh, rock star biographical documentaries. The, so the niche, very... we're doing two of them this week. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's a very untapped genre. Uh, not many documentaries really, you know, veer into this field, but. <laughs> I, d- I decided to highlight it uh, this week because, you know, not many people know uh, about, you know, these, these documentaries that document the, the lives of famous musicians. And in this case, uh, I watched one from 2015 called Colin Hay, Waiting for My Real Life. Uh, are you familiar with Colin Hay, Calvin? Is this uh, Men at Work? What- yeah, yeah. He, oh, was, okay. he was the lead singer and guitarist of uh, Men at Work. Uh, and then uh, he went on to have his own quasi-successful uh, solo independent career uh, from like the, the 90s up, you know, to the 2000s, where he kind of struggled for a while, uh, you know, wasn't able to kind of maintain that same level of popularity and then kind of got a big boom in the uh, mid to late 2000s and, uh, you know, has had a very successful uh, career as a solo uh, acoustic artist, uh, primarily. He, he writes wonderful music. He has a beautiful voice. Uh, he tells these fascinating stories with his show and uh, a very interesting trajectory as an artist in evolution. And, and I think the, the documentary does a, a decent job of uh, kind of cataloging it. I learned a good bit watching the, uh, the, the documentary, not knowing a whole lot, particularly kind of not appreciating how big Men at Work was when they first kind of came to uh, America, where they finally hit with their uh, big song, you know, like uh, Land Down, uh, Down Under, yeah, yeah. of course, which is which is still a giant sensation and basically cemented uh, Americans' ideas of what Vegemite <laughs> in the fuck is. <laughs> it, it is. Uh, so, yeah, and it's still a big deal uh, to a point where, like, d- during their the height of their popularity in the 80s, which was only for, like, a couple of years, like well, two albums they put should- out. <laughs> I should give my perspective on like that kind of eighties that sure, sure. 
that kind of uh, pop pop punk uh, new wave band, which in my opinion of that era, they only had like two or three good songs in the album. Like, like you get your down under and maybe two others. And uh, th- those are going to be now are... that, that great, yeah. great, great saxophone. Absolutely. <laughs> that one's got to be on there. But if you listen to the whole album, it wasn't like they were flush with things. So I think those careers are short lived because they have that. I think this guy is more interesting than the band, of course. Abs- absolutely. I would agree with that. But I would also argue that, that Men at Work is probably a bit underrated you think uh, so? as a band. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, while obviously those those mainstay tunes are, are going to stand the, the test of time and kind of define their image, I think the other works on their albums are also good. Again, maybe not okay. quite as, as fantastic and, and uh, as a whole, like as a, as a record, it, it may not be uh, anything particularly brilliant, but the songs are still really good. They have a you know particular vibe to their style that's, that's a little transgressive um, that, that you can kind of dig into. But again, it's it's not something that you're necessarily going to like dig into and dissect and maybe find you know a host of new favorites within. But yeah. they, they have a very interesting uh, niche. And again, like the fact that they were catapulted to such popularity during a very brief time in the beginning of the 80s is very interesting and then uh very quickly kind of fell off uh you know the the popularity and it broke up fast due to uh you know just the the infighting and uh you know kind of the the explosion of what uh fame and popularity and money can kind of generally do and so then afterwards uh his story kind of catalogs a struggle of a single artist then trying to kind of recapture you know the popularity that they had and, and struggling with that until he does eventually find uh, his own voice in, you know, telling his, his stories and composing these these more beautiful uh, acoustic tunes, especially. He's got, you know, a host of great uh, single songs, uh, one, one of which, of course, is the, you know, it, the, the documentary gets its title from Waiting for My Real Life to Begin, yeah, which song. is a, a, a great song by, by Colin Hayes. We should but, play a little bit right here. Any, any minute, minute now. now. Ship is coming in. I'll keep checking the horizon. And I'll stand on the bow and feel the waves come crashing. Come crashing down. Yeah. Uh but the the documentary itself, uh, I want to talk about as well because it's not it's not just about you know when, when we evaluate a documentary, it's not just about the the information they convey and the story and the subject. It's about the craft of the documentary. Mm-hmm. And this this one is uh, very cheap, very amateur. Okay, <laughs> uh, I don't have a lot of good things to to say about it because it's it's like I'm I'm very baffled by some of the decisions, uh, particularly in in kind of like the the framing of certain things the way it's shot um a, a lot of it is like cut together from like there's lots of interviews with with hay and other people as well but they're cut together from like you know it looks like multiple locations without like a whole lot of coherence as to when they chose to like some of it looks very off the cuff like a lot of footage of him just standing at like his bar in his house kind of just re- relaying stories but then it while telling the same story it also <laughs> cut to him like sitting at a piano bench in a recording studio talking about it and sure. the angles from which these are cut are very weird and you can tell like 
occasionally they'll cut to another camera from <laughs> in the same scene like they're running two at once yeah. and it's like you just you didn't think about this when you were framing it you just kind of set up two cameras and just let it go right and, and at one point like i noticed like one like they cut like it, particularly in the scene in this house they cut from the single spot they have which again is awkwardly framed it's like from a vast distance and he's looking off like in the opposite direction of the camera which is very a, a very odd choice but it cuts to a closer shot of him from the other side but it's out of focus like the focus wanes and i'm like why would you use this shot this doesn't make any sense <laughs> and i know you have other footage because you've been showing me the other side this whole time yeah and uh, it's you know they they get lots of interviews from people but like i was uh, like looking over the advertising forward or the descriptions of like oh yeah we got descriptions from like hugh jackman and like like zach braff and and uh you know people here uh, big fleetwood and they're they're all there for like two minute snippets to talk okay. about uh maybe a part of of the influence in the case of people like Fleetwood or or Zach Braff where they had a particular influence on Colin's life but like Hugh Jackman's just there because he's Australian I guess and he's aware of, of Colin Hayes of his or something yeah yeah like a like a very loose association and uh it's it's just like a quick clip and I'm like eh, that's not very insightful uh the the documentary is just it, it very expediently goes through the life like like it starts off right away it, and it starts off in a really hackneyed way you know those like typical profile documentaries and, and and it does it does the thing where it's like they they ask everyone they interviewed how would you describe this person in one word uh, you know and, uh, and 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 you got the quick cut everyone was like hmm uh uh and then and then you cut all together everyone giving similar answers everything that's exactly how it starts and it's and it's the most cliched way you can open a documentary um, i'd say uh, my favorite uh of that type would be uh cameron crowe's uh, pearl jam 20 um I wonder, if, well, uh, it's because he lived it. I mean, he was friends with all these guys and he was kind of, he was the kind of the guy documenting that scene anyway and that informed all of his filmmaking. So a uh, very personal choice, but do you have one that, that resonates with you of this type? Uh, I, I'm trying to remember if, if you had uh, the Tom you Petty one? particular style. Yeah, the Tom Petty one has always stuck out to me that, that Peter Bogdanovich did. Uh, and I think one of the interesting assets is because, uh, Bogdanovich didn't know much about Tom Petty when he got involved in the project. And I think that involved that, that created an interesting dynamic and approach to it, you know, like coming to it as a, as a kind of blank uh, and objective uh, observer to, to the matter. And it's a really comprehensive documentary with uh, everyone involved. Again, it's like, it's like a four hour thing and it's, uh, it <laughs> I was terrific. It yeah. Oh yeah. It's, it's, it's worth it. Um, but yeah, this uh, this is directed by uh, two first-time director Aaron Falls and Nate Go- Gotham. Uh, I don't know time directors too. Yeah, I don't I don't know what the the involvement is in the project or the history of it, but uh, I'm I'm glad it exists just for the the sake of I think Colin Hay's story is worth telling and worth documenting. I wish it was done a little better, but I did learn some interesting things as well, like uh, uh, kind of an important thing that pops up later in the career is in 2009 the band was uh, hit with a lawsuit from um, <laughs> the, the people, you, you know, like the, the, the Kookaburra nursery rhyme. Yeah. This is a dark story, isn't it? It's, this isn't a, a, a little, it's, it's, yeah. oh, it's kind of odd. Like the people who, who owned the rights to the, the Kookaburra nursery rhyme, you know, the yeah. in the old gum tree. Yeah. That one, uh, they, they sued men at work for the, like the, the flute uh, part in, in down under because it bared a similarity 
to to that nursery rhyme and it, yeah. it kind of came about because it was like on a trivia question on an australian game show and happened to come up and then and then the lawyers all like kind of jumped on that and they uh they they tried to sue them for like 60 percent of the royalties dating back to 1981 which is insane uh and, and they did ultimately like win the lawsuit but they only got five percent since like 2001 which is which only amounted to like a hundred thousand dollars versus like the four million in, in uh lawyer fees and such that they put into it but it was so, sad because it wasn't there like the defining thing for like down under was like that lawsuit about that did a member kill himself or something or was he, it just... he didn't kill yeah okay. he didn't kill himself he died of a heart attack uh, I always uh, thought it was that he killed himself. <laughs> no, no, he, he died. The myth kind of outgrows the story. Yeah, yeah, uh, but it was. It's obviously it's very felt. You could tell by the the band and uh, you know, hey, in particular that it, it maybe was not the cause, but definitely contributed. Like you could yeah. see how much this this issue, this this total greed, plagued them all, and and the this tireless like five year case, uh, just being drug drug out and just trying to to swipe away from them this uh kind of integral part of their their legacy and their their worth uh just just for a fucking you know a, a profit a dollar uh and it's awful it's an awful thing but i didn't realize and it's again it's it's kind of absurd when you when you think about that like those are right. you know like the kind of these two iconic musical representations of, of Australia that, that we have in our, yeah. in our conscious and that kind of collide there. I was like, Oh, I didn't know that. And then when it kind of has a sad outcome, that's, that's not as fun, but here, hearing about Colin Hayes career and his struggles, um, you know, particularly through like the, the, the low points of his career uh, is interesting, but the documentary itself is, is fairly under underwhelming. Okay. I wish it was better composed, but I, I would still recommend it for anyone who's, interested in in men at work and Colin Hay uh just for kind of like an exposure to that story more so uh I just wish someone <laughs> gave it a better flourish wouldn't you say it should be called man at work that's actually the name of one of his uh fantastic solo albums uh that's that I right totally recommend man at work uh I've, I've stolen from him now we're gonna have a loss <laughs> for my joke theft oh it comes full circle <laughs> Uh, speaking about Full Circle, we've got another um, music documentary uh, by another auteur. I, I don't know what those two people are auteurs or if they'll never make a movie again. Uh, but Edgar Wright certainly will make another movie because his movie, uh, Last Night in Soho, is coming out later this year. And before he makes another movie, he's made this one, uh, which came after his last movie he made. Um, yeah, that's how, that's how chronology works. Things come after one another. <laughs> now that we've covered the chronology of Edgar Wright, let's go through the 50 or 25 album chronology of the Sparks Brothers. Um, they made albums uh, throughout, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, zeros, tens, and now the 20s. They're still active as a band. Very rare. Uh, for like the reasons we talked about with Men at Work, there's always something that comes up that, that splits a band. But to have brothers... Uh, I think a, a brotherly bond could overcome some of those things. Uh, and especially an uh, energetic band that has shifting ideas where no two albums sound especially the same. There's three in the 70s when they were at their biggest. Uh, with the, There's, uh, you know, there's not enough room in this town for the both of us. And that whole like uh, that pop disco album was uh, their uh, big European influence. And uh, there's uh, those three albums they recorded in the UK that were you know they had a, they had a sound but besides that i'd say they shifted what they were doing every uh, few albums so the legacy of the sparks brothers 
has never been quite well defined by how they wanted it to be defined, right? Like they, they shifted so often that they threw their fan base off. Um, they, it's hard to follow the whole career and to be a fan of it. So finally, Edgar Wright's created this one document. Um, uh, he's said that uh, it was kind of a thing where he kept saying someone should make a documentary on it. And then he was kind of called on it. So he was like, uh, yeah, I guess, uh, I guess I'll do that. So uh, he made a verbal contract, uh, came backstage and talked to Sparks brothers and uh, created this really intriguing thing. This one very well framed. Um, and I think it, it has their funny framing to it uh, by the end credits. They come and kind of disrupt everything that came before. Um, I, I don't want to spoil that part. It's so good. Uh, there's uh there's a part in the midsection where it goes album by album and it becomes a little bit dry because it's going through. Uh, now they're popular. Now they're not. Now they're somewhat popular. Here's what happened uh, to this sound, but it's very well covered. So um, I'm glad it's all in there. I'd hardly make edits even at two and a half hours long. Uh, very... that's, a, that's a long time for a music documentary. It is. I say, I say after just praising the four hour Tom Petty documentary, <laughs> I think it's, I think it could be earned. I think Edgar Wright could earn three, you know, almost three hours by just the, the nature of his cut and presentation that is longest movie to date it's got it could be, right? be yeah it has to be it yeah it has to be uh and it works i it all works um and it's fascinating and they they have a lot of interesting talking heads on there a lot of uh, uh not just members of the band's talking heads uh people on a documentary talking heads i'm glad we covered that aspect too uh there's a, a lot of value here um and I don't know if anyone is a fan, a fan of the entire breadth of the Sparks Brothers. So I think the greatest thing about this is it hardly leaves you another choice but to become a fan of this band who like idolize uh, these European directors that they, they looked up to uh, John Luke Godard and they looked up to uh, Tati, who they almost made a film with. Uh, my yeah, favorite you, part of the movie. You got to tell me about that because reading it in your review, which is on the site now, you can go check out. Uh, sounded fucking insane <laughs> so uh yeah after playtime you know what's happened with like tati right like he just wasn't really able to like complete these grand visions and this was going to be on the same scope as like a playtime like in that same universal build not so much like the monster who loves like holiday it's not going to be like that that you know more like drifty vacation film it's going to be this like social commentary investigating systems and places and ideas of like bureaucracy and all this other stuff uh, it's about like a tv executive and uh hulo goes into the studio he thinks he has a toy gun for the studio he aims at his head and it's actually a real gun and kills himself um that's after- that's <laughs> sounds fucking dark for, yeah. for a hulo film like like not at all like any of right. the other ones it's I, very out there <laughs> i assume he had a bit of depression after playtime and uh, playtime uh, was over yeah because playtime say. playtime lost a lot of money if i remember yeah. right it, i think it was it was potentially the most expensive french film it was the, the most expensive at that time yeah uh, yeah and, and, and lost, lost a lot of money yeah uh, from those expansive sets and really building a whole universe and i think he wanted to do that within the means of like a tv studio in france here and then which sounds uh, very interesting after after this guy died there was going to be like disruption at the studio and then the mall brothers who are the sparks brothers it's their name the mall brothers um they they would come in and uh kind of do their thing and it would be like americans showing the french how to make television uh, unfortunately the um tati died before that was able to be realized but that was going to be the sparks big breakthrough and this is a very significant year i should say because uh, i i never know how to pronounce his name they're they're working with leo Carath, 
So uh, they're doing, you know, like the Holy Motors guy, they're making the one with Adam Driver and Sparks mm-hmm. Brothers are doing that whole soundtrack. So once again, they're going back to like a French auteur and finally doing the thing they always really wanted to do. Uh, they, they premiered in a movie called Roller Coaster, which was a disaster movie. Also disastrous box office and critic results. Um, you can tell I'm very passionate and fired up about Sparks Brothers just from that that one experience of this documentary and kind of following it up till now. I, I wasn't that familiar with the band outside. Like uh, there's not enough room for both of us and uh, some of their, you know, more disco hits, but uh, kind of going into more of it. I see how there's songwriting like structurally tells the same stories. It's like the French directors and how it's like playing on Hollywood ideas and deconstructing what it means to tell a story over multiple layers of a song. You can see that influence in, pretty much every electronic kind of music that comes after them. They're like the most influential band that nobody realized uh, influenced them. Uh, You hear a lot about like the Velvet Underground that um, they didn't sell a lot of records, but everyone who did made an album that uh, Sparks Brothers are like a, you know, they didn't sell a lot of records, but uh, they made 25 of them and all of them influenced the direction of music. So do you have any more to, to say about Sparks Brothers before we get into that? I just highly recommend it. I have a review on the site and I, I love Edgar Wright. I'm so hyped about a Soho just based yeah. on the trailer, which I don't often do. I'm very uh, picky about what trailers I allow to really influence my my excitement for a film. But uh, it, it looks very about, exciting. Yeah, something Definitely. about like that that wipe at the end and the still screen and the giallo of it all. I'm very, very excited about that. And I'm very excited about Annette. So happy to see Sparks Brothers doing Good thing. This will this will be a very interesting year for Edgar Wright for sure. Two yeah. high, highly different projects from anything he's uh, done prior to now, and uh, hopefully Sparks Brothers is a good uh, you know um, qu- qualifier for for what's to come there with Last Night in Soho as well. If this is such a resounding success for you, especially and hopefully many others, uh, then that means uh, his other. Uh, divergent film here will be uh, equally as entrancing and exciting. I think I I could say the best thing about it that I could say about one of these, which if you love the music, you're going to love the documentary. And if you don't, you're going to become a huge fan of the music. Uh, I think that's all I can ask for. That that sounds like a terrific endorsement of uh, the documentary here. Uh, And, you know, it's it's out now. People can go check out Sparks Um, Brothers in theaters. Should be uh, um, something high on your priority list. If not, yeah, it should be out on the time of this release at least. It's uh, it's out right now. It's a, it's oh, at it a couple of art houses around me. I've I've seen showings for it. Okay. I believe it's uh, out, so you can go see it. Go check out uh, Sparks Brothers, and uh, I think we'll be back in just a second. Here, we're gonna take a short break and then talk about Whiplash. <laughs> so bad at uh, like Q and A's and shit. I, I cringe every time I think about when I went to the other side of the wind and I asked the editor what he what he thought of <laughs> like like Orson Welles dying at the same age as Jake Hannaford, <laughs> and, and he kind of just gave me a, a like a like a kind of blank look and like like an empty answer. I was like, oh, that was such a stupid question. I'm, oh no, <laughs> I'll, I'll never live that down. 
I think it was. I, I mean, it, those are interesting experiences, though. It, you never know what you'll ask in that. It was. It was a pretentious as fuck question. Yeah, about, and I should have asked something about the actual like making of it. And I don't know. I th- I think I like kind of like froze up and like. Yeah, I get it. Like it was something that occurred to me in the moment, and like I didn't expect to be like called on to answer. Uh but whatever. It was. It was still probably the best thing I've ever done in a movie theater. Interviews see. are hard. I mean, like the best best interview opportunity I've got is Corita, and there was one question that he really didn't like. <laughs> uh, it was like, "What? You know, your work's been changing. What What's going on with your process?" <laughs> I think it was like a hypercritical question too. It took him three times, and just like my face, every time he deferred to the translator and wanted clarification, I I was just cringing so hard by the end and. Eventually, he gave like a really fascinating like analogy about a pitcher losing their, you know, their fastball and and how you have to adapt as you age to become a different kind of baseball player. I thought it was really fascinating, but um, very grateful for him that he took the patience to uh, not be like a this journalist. Uh, you know, what are they asking me? Yeah. What a stupid question. <laughs> yeah. Um <laughs> Not even a stupid question. He said oh, yeah. it was really a good question. Eventually, it just it, it was one that really threw him off, and I think that's a good kind of question. No, that's that seems like a good question to ask again, like as as opposed to mine, which was just dumb, <laughs> very dumb. <laughs> I think it's funny though. Uh, yeah, you would think that uh, you asked um, the the teacher from a whiplash with with that kind of response solid solid transition i was just gonna do like the the music and you can fade that in that's the the whiplash music it's catchy i think we should have you do the music just uh vocalize from now on i think we're getting a lot of good stuff this i'm 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 feeling very musical this week and i'm just and and the benefit is is that i'm not gonna listen to any of this so i'm not gonna be embarrassed later that's that's how i you know insulate myself from any of the the potentially cringy stuff that i'm doing right now is that i just <laughs> completely move on as soon as i'm done so i could just do random ass shit like that and and have no second thoughts for me let I'm me know dark. let me uh, go ahead and comment and let me know how how terrible my my scatting sounds um would you like david to do more singing on the podcast and uh what songs would you like him to sing <laughs> whiplash uh what a movie i thought I, I i thought i might even revise my take on it i i thought i might find something else here uh, that i wouldn't be so moved but uh, uh we don't cover many movies that are so kinetic and just like so tightly moving that often i i'm i'm really excited to have something like this on the show it's a it's a very tight movie for sure. It it uh, moves with great expediency and is uh, kinetic. I think you said is a great word for it. I think its rhythm matches its subject uh, pretty spectacularly. With with a few uh, things that, that don't quite gel as well. That kind of are uh, that, that that don't harmonize quite as well. You know. Yeah. Uh, but that's all right. Uh, and I think those, those problems have always been kind of present in the film. Uh, and I've been aware of them, but this time I was just, this, this is my first time, I think, approaching the film with a proper critical lens where I was Mm -hmm. like, let me figure out what's actually, what doesn't work in the film. So I can actually appreciate why it works so well otherwise, because this is, this is one of those, when it came out, it definitely knocked my socks off, um, that year 2015 was a really good year yeah movies, 14 and 15 were i think this was a 14 wasn't it, it uh i think i think just it's that 15. two year run 15 yeah those are those were probably two two of the best yeah you're right 14 i gotta edit God that damn so that's a under the skin year and uh upstream color just so much like 
fascinating cinema there. Um, just like out? what else was, was there Birdman that, that year? year? Yeah, Birdman and Birdman. Uh, that uh, Bong Joon Ho movie, uh, Snowpiercer, was that year? Um, it was. It was uh, a really was fascinating time. No, that was uh, fourteen. Okay, I'm going to believe you. Okay. Uh, uh, boy, boyhood, boyhood, came yeah. Out that year. Uh, let's see. The The Hobbit, Battle of Five Armies, obviously. Amazing yeah. Spider-Man two. Great Real movie. Real classics. Year. Um, Paddington. Paddington was that year. Yeah. yeah. There we go. Are we ever going to do Paddington two? Probably. Do you want to just skip past one and go straight to two? Yeah, I think I do. <laughs> <laughs> everyone, uh, everyone loves. It. It's like a meme almost, but like a sincere meme. Everyone yeah, loves a very, Paddington. A very wholesome meme that I think is earned. Um, I I would say that the the thing that really moves me about Whiplash though, and makes it one of the be- very best of that year is that, like you say, it's designed around the song Whiplash and and the song Caravan, and that like the the peaks and the. You know, the valleys and peaks are very designed around those intense feelings of the song. And uh, we had very interesting discussions. I thought that our, our friends Oliver and Pavlis brought really interesting critiques to the movie, to the to our uh, to our Discord community earlier this year. I, I mean, I, I was, it's, it's I, been uh, a while. Yeah. It's been a while. So, so I can't quite remember what their critiques were exactly. I imagine that Pavlos, as a, as a more studious connoisseur of the jazz, probably has a better insight into some of the more musical qualities of it than I do. Uh, Cause even at times, like, like there's sometimes watching, I think this is more deficiency on my end, but I'm like, I have a hard time telling. I was like, was that not good? I can't tell. <laughs> I thought that was fine. Is that fast? I think he even I really, can't even tell if he's rushing or dragging. Yeah. I think Pavlos really liked it. I think that's part of the tension, right? Is that we don't know. And how could the character really know until he's slapped in the head? And I, I think that's the same experience. We I can't, have. I can't tell. I, I can't tell if that's that's a it's an insanely good detail from Chazelle that it's like it's imperceptible so. to us, or if I'm just a dum dum who who doesn't have as good an ear for jazz as someone like like him. It's it's somewhere caught in there, but it doesn't really matter ultimately. I, um, I don't th- know if you know, but I did like jazz drumming in high school, and I was never very good, but I <laughs> I I love the jazz drumming, and so like this is like right in my veins, like it's like pulsing in like my energy, and I. You know, I, I could hold some sticks and play a little song and read a little bit of sheet music, but I'm I'm nothing like as good as a oh obviously as anything yeah, like yeah. this. I, I don't know if if people who haven't touched a drum kit understand how difficult just regular drumming is, let alone jazz just, drumming. Just do a just do a roll in time and, and tell me how easy drumming is. Or well, I did marching in, in band, everything. Um, I I I was drumming for years and um, uh, it's hard. I, I, I did a little bit of drumming uh, as a youth as well. I, I practiced and it had a small role in, in the, uh, the youth group band, the, the church youth group band. And uh, it's, it's really hard because you have to coordinate four different like, like rhythms uh, at the same time. Yeah. You have to use all of your limbs in different, um, you know, uh, synchronizations like that. And uh it's it's very very difficult to get that as, and, and I would often mess it up. I was no good at it, and so I I completely understand uh like like this this insane then level of difficulty when it comes to being even even more you know uh expedient and and having to you know rattle off these uh, insane um. I don't even have the vocabulary to describe yeah. it, honestly. I'm that's that's how kind of out, out of it uh, that I am, and, and so in some ways the film feels kind of musically out of my 
reach, even though I, I, I feel like I have a decent grasp on, on, you know, the kind of ideas and, and terminologies and such, but even then it's, it's, it's definitely a whole other world. I think it's tackling in, in terms of, uh, you know, professional musicality. And I think like it's musical acumen is so high and so in tune and so engaged with the, like a fluent, uh, like a fluent, like a language of, of drumming that, um, well, it, it's so encouraging to me to see that really captured. And One of the things that's really intense, at least performance-wise and capturing here, is that uh, the, the the dubbing of things and the synchronization with the actual yeah. hits and musical, it's it's like practically perfect from what it you is. can tell. And, and that's pretty insane for someone who is, you know, Miles Teller not being by, by nature... A, a musician let alone a, a you know jazz drummer uh and had to practice an insane amount i think i read somewhere a while ago that like 80 percent of the, the drumming on the soundtrack is him that's which incredible is, yeah which is which is a, a, a an amazing achievement that he put so much yeah. effort into uh you know doing that for the role uh but but also just then how that then translates to the screen it adds that extra layer of believability because if things were out of sync it would be a little odd um probably forgivable but odd nonetheless uh but the fact that every every crash you know is is right on cue uh and you know there's not a misplaced note or, or beat uh is, is pretty phenomenal and it helps just suck you into the the world of what's going on even more i i think like the crux of what our, our friend pavlos was saying is that like the transposition of music to screen is just so so precise and uh, so well done that it kind of um, overcomes any problems with the the typified uh, Chazelle, you know, cardboard characters, which uh, are definitely a thing. But in this, it is about the loss of humanity as you try to strive for perfection and what is lost in that process. It's the one time where that absolutely works for him, where I don't think it ever really does again. I mean, this is his magnum opus. This is his masterpiece that he'll make, I think. I think so, and I think it's it's been a downhill trajectory for him from here. Yeah. Um, may, uh, I, I know La La Land has has a significant following. People love La La Land, and uh, <laughs> and, and and have sung its praises quite considerably. But uh, it's honestly not not even in in the same territory here and worth comparing. And and this is going to be the the La La Land uh, shitting on part of the podcast here for a second because it's gotten to a point where I think in the popular, you know, conscious that, that it's, it's people have really taken like a territorial kind of ownership of it. Like even, La just La in, Land. uh, yeah. And it's, it's really like kind of baffling, like, and people uh, I think... like, I, like, I, I went on like Reddit just recently and, and saw people like in comments, like arguing about it and people were like, Oh, now, you know, it, people just, they just love to shit on La La Land because, <laughs> you know, it, it lost the best picture to Moonlight. You had that cool whole kerfuffle. And so now it's popular to be all negative on it uh, to a point where it's like an underrated movie now. And I'm just like, it, it makes me want to bash my head against the wall because how can a movie that has such a fucking feverish following, like, la la land be any bit underrated and and again like that's like they're trying to ignore any potential criticisms like, yeah and, and they try they, they explain away shit like uh you know ryan gosling's bad singing because chazelle cast for for chemistry between his performers rather than musicals and they say you know oh the middle it's intentionally not like a musical because it's more about this romance thing it's like no the, the film just drops its musical elements and it's it's poorly structured it, you know and i think you can it, have chemistry and a musical at the same time yeah. you don't have to pick 
Although maybe Chazelle does in this one. Uh, I think maybe he does pick in this one. I I think also we we're being too literal when we say that La La Land is the best modern musical because in my mind this is a musical. In my mind, Whiplash it's, is a musical. It's uh, it, uh, I would not call it a musical, but I would also I would say it's definitely a musical. It's you it's need, a music movie. It's a music need, movie. It's about the music. So you require words for a musical. Is that what you're uh, saying? Uh, I mean, there's a certain structure. There's a certain um, approach to to uh, musicals and the the ideas they convey and how they use songs, uh, especially to convey uh, i think this does all that well well, and it does it in a a particularly kind of detached sense again it's a it's more of a formatting thing uh and whereas this uses music as as a kind of conduit um for for the characters and it's all very literal um i would i would say most films in the musical genre uh, aside from like backstage ones but even then they have an element of um you know surrealness in in, in that the, the songs are not meant to be real. They're not diegetic. Uh, and, and to kind of further back that point, I will say that while there has been a dearth of good musicals since the 70s, probably, uh, uh, Rocket Man is the best modern musical. <laughs> uh, I would agree with that. Um, I think we both have a <laughs> profound love for Rocket Man. Uh, yeah, it's in... it's it's 10 times better than what La La Land is trying to achieve. I would which agree. Is just cribbing, cribbing from everything. And... It's just, it's a copy paste of so many films. And the, the people who, who love like Elmer's Elmer's. I don't, I don't hate they La, love... La Land, by the way. I, uh, I don't hate I, it as much as you do. I, I uh, like it's been it. a long time. It's been a long time since I've seen it. Uh, maybe like uh, since I saw it in theaters, uh, yeah. which I was very let down. That I didn't hate it at the time, but my, my frustration with it has only grown as it's like, blind popularity has just skyrocketed la la land uh, for me was at least an interesting personal experience i'd been in the coma for you know a couple of months then i was hospitalized then i went to rehab and then uh you know like a, my my therapist in rehab's like let's get out of here go to a movie and it was like my first movie back to the big screen and so for me like there's at least that pocket of like thank god for an escape and an attachment to like this this thing like i think I think every musical should be seen on the big screen or it loses like half its purpose. Um, I think if you go see like in the Heights on your TV on HBO, you're, you're selling yourself short and there's no point in doing it. I, I think every musical, I'd like to see all the old ones on a big screen. I'd like to go. Hey, with you. Yeah. I think yeah, once Hollywood theater opens, I think we should get to some. If, if one pops up, I'll tell you uh, when I, when I got to see top hat on the screen there, that was, that was an amazing time. I bet it it's beautiful. magical. Yeah. It I was... think, I think every musical expands once you have a room full of people too. Yeah, de- definitely. And so okay, I can I can see that. But also at the same time, like just yeah, La La go, Land's go just watch okay if, too. If you yeah. if you like La La Land, just go watch Umbrellas of Cherbourg. It's yeah. the same it's the same movie, but better. And uh, you know Umbrellas of Cherbourg is one of my favorites. So I, I exactly. appreciate at least and, it's derivative and, of my favorite thing. It's it's not one of my favorites. Yeah. I, I, I we had a whole podcast about this where I, I talked about how unaffected I was by some parts of it, but <laughs> it's undeniably better. Yeah. I think uh, just every metric and, and and there's so much other things like and again it's like it's like cheap Hollywood like grafting where it's just like taking certain elements here it's like oh you know they're they're at the Griffith Observatory and they're doing the same, like you know it, it's it's just very like surface level like adoration for old I Hollywood agree. stuff without actually like achieving any any of those things like one, one of the things that sparked us off on the Reddit thing I was talking about is someone pointed out a detail where like in an interview Damien Chazelle said that like he had just watched like vertigo the night before a certain day of shooting and it inspired him to change a certain sequence where they they put emma stone in the one. same same dress and they had the green lighting and stuff and it's yeah. like all right so you like vertigo what does that have to do with your movie though 
Like that there are no themes or ideas in Vertigo that translate here to to your movie of uh, Lala Land. I, I don't like all you're telling me is that you like the color scheme and, and what Hitchcock is doing without appreciating what those specific details do for, you know, Vertigo. It's just, again, like just empty, you know, uh, imitations there. Anyway, uh, this concludes the, the La La Land complaint section of our podcast here. Have you uh, seen I... um, First Man? Um no. You haven't seen Chazelle's no. first man. So that's um, a... you know, there's there's it, it had such a mixed reception yeah. going on and coming off of something like like La Land, which I was very underwhelmed by. Again, like I, I appreciated some things about it. Uh, you know, I think it's it's shot very nicely. I'll yeah. say that at least. It was a pretty movie, but uh ultimately left me very cold. And so like and and just such a decline from the the quality of whiplash, which again I, I kind of renewed my my faith in with this rewatch. I was prepared going in this time to to think less of it based on how I soured it and how I've grown in my appreciation of films since seeing it in 2015 it's been a long time yeah uh but to to see that largely its qualities were were maintained and I appreciated it on levels that I hadn't even considered on, on the first time particularly on an editing level here uh those those were all uh significant things that were highlighted on this rewatch of Whiplash but no I've I've not been inspired to go back to, to go and rewatch uh, to watch first man again. Like I, I think said, it, I think I think it reveals think... his same obsessions that he is obsessed with um, exceptionalism in his characters and uh, like a hardened character who's chasing something where they lose some of their humanity, but they try to achieve greatness and uh, whiplash La La Land and uh, first man, but it is just downward, just downward trajectory. It's... Whereas I love whiplash. I like La La Land. I think first man's fine. His his next project uh, listed currently Babylon? Is, is called Babylon. Yeah. yeah, and it's supposed to be it's it's like it's, it's something vague about old Hollywood, which again is is coming back to it's, like, it's, like, it's got me thinking about La La Land. I'm like that yeah. doesn't sound very good because you already demonstrated how you have these these empty platitudes to serve to to this era, particularly if you're talking about what you're evoking with Babylon is you're evoking the specific period of, of, of silent Hollywood and specifically right. a, uh, Kenneth Anger's version of, you know, the, the kind of mass uh, scandals and such in his, his book, his highly controversial book, Hollywood Babylon, which is full of a bunch of bullshit that needs to be deciphered. Is it the next uh, Mank? Is that, yeah, is that where we're going? It, it, it might be, but like even more like exaggerated. And I yeah. don't know, I, I don't like just, just the, the concept of there. Again, I'll, I'll give it a fair shake once I get some actual like material and trailer to sink into. But from a premise there, it sounds like you're just like hopping on the, the you know, inflated idea of Hollywood's scandal, you know, mythos uh, crap. And again, with what he's demonstrated so far, it, it doesn't leave me with much faith. This I is a it's... very, very long segment dedicated, by the way, to being Chazelle's very movies, to, to um, Damien Chazelle. I think it's, it's good that we're looking at his movies. And I think that when Whiplash does something like the, the green tinting in the jazz club, I think it means something in the amazing scene. It, it there, means there's a color scheming throughout Whiplash, like the, the very it's golden good. hue that you have in the classrooms, these very warm color palettes. When I was watching with uh, my fiance last night, she said the, the, the color reminds her of, of jazz, Yeah, which, which I'm inclined to agree with. Um, That's you know, where it's I was got going. A very, a very intense color palette, which is which is very good, and I, and I think the the cinematography and the editing also complements that. It's very frenetic. It's you know it's full of energy and uh, movement, uh, you know, and it's a beautiful you know it's a marriage of that with the material there. It all works together really well, which again is just 
confounds you with what comes later. <laughs> it absolutely does. Um, there's something to it too, where like the characters are built up and even if they become like shallow us of humans, there's that, there's that play with the, with their emotions. Whereas there's that predator and prey play there that, that matters in the movie. And, and it reveals itself in that jabs club where there's that twist where you realize he's fucking with them again. The uh, the jazz club scene where we're, we're jumping around a lot. We haven't even established what the film is, but, but it, I think people whatever know. People, yeah. people know. Go see it if you haven't yet. Uh, where where he meets up with with Fletcher and they have this conversation, and Fletcher kind of reveals more about his character and what he's trying to do. I think it's one of the best moments of the film because it agree. does give his character like actual insight and dimension beyond being this like like a total like aggressor sociopath which is already by the way like not not i mean i it's so great that they give him that dimension and i think it it's necessary but it would still be a fantastic performance and realization of character if you didn't have that nuance to him because jk simmons is just bringing such an incredible energy and uh vision to the character like you you get the sense that he really understands what this fletcher guy is about he's not just being an abusive monster you know with with an exaggerated performance like you very easily could take this character i think it would be very easy to play it just as like one dimensionally villainous but he doesn't he he gives him even in scenes before we get that reveal of of background about him he plays him with a very specific motivation and his his total heinousness and absolute disregard for the 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 you know res- respectability of people uh there you see that there's a motivation and reasoning behind it even before we get more insight and it's good because it builds up builds up exactly why he's doing it that he doesn't want them to fail and that if someone said good job that's the worst thing they could do that there's a feeling that he's really pushing them to become what he couldn't be there's there's a reasoning behind his sociopathy here that that he has a, a justification for his his singular selfish ideals here because ultimately it's it's a self-serving idea is that he wants to be the person who brings the next bird into the world you know mm-hmm. and, and it's not really about encouraging people it's about molding someone like he's a, a you know musical michelangelo effectively and it's yeah. and it's entirely a self-absorbed motivation but one that he has you know wrapped around this justification for that he's that he's found this reasoning that kind of you know uh the the, the ends justify the, the means idea of it you know totally detached from any kind of uh actual like like regard for you know encouragement and, and, and what it means and uh pushing someone to the extreme like like why you could foster that kind of relationship it's it's like in, in total uh in, incorrect regard for for how you would mold someone like that out mm-hmm. of uh out of trial and, and, and tribulation um and and that's this interesting you know, twist of his his character there that you can understand, you can comprehend why he is this way, without ever like like sympathizing with the action. Obviously, yeah, there there are those important moments where like when a student of his dies and he creates the little story for it, and it's still a kind of manipulation onto his students. He's sh- he's saying how great this other guy was to see if you know who's going to rise to that occasion. Then nobody does and. And it's just this one guy that he ever has the connection with. Finally, someone's overcome it and and become what he's tried to mold. And in a way, he he does win, but but he also loses. Yeah. Um, 
And and likewise, I think Miles Teller is giving an equally powerful performance and in, in working off of him. And again, nuanced within itself, because there is a singularity to to his character as well, is that he's entirely focused about becoming the best in a very toxic manner, in a way that is self-destructive and and not actually uh, conducive to to his work, even though all, all he cares about, and he, he doesn't care if he destroys himself in the process there. He wants to be the very best and push himself to the absolute limits. And there's an, there's an admiration to be had in that dedication, but the, the singular approach to it uh, is, is what in and of itself prevents him from, from achieving any kind of greatness. That's where I thought I'd fall off the movie and where I'd find a lot of holes in it. I thought it would be in Teller's stuff that's not the drumming and not his relationship with his teacher and the student relationship thing. I, yeah. I thought it would be in that in that fake romance they push to the side. Or I thought it would be like with the family dinner. Uh, no, I think all that stuff is important and uh, leads to where he ends up. I, I think it's important to I, his character. That I he, do think those are, those are very important scenes because if you just yeah. had the, the musical uh, dynamic and the, the, the relationship with the school and stuff, then it would be very singular one note. You need to see that this uh, obsession and this uh, isolation extends out beyond his, you know, school here and in his livelihood there. But I will say those scenes are also probably the weakest and, and worstly, you know, uh, yeah. written parts of the film, particularly the relationship with the girlfriend, uh, the, the <laughs> confrontation in the, uh, the, the, the diner scene where he breaks up with her. It's just entirely like an alien conversation. It like is. the, the reaction that, that she has to him, it's, it's very hyperbolic and extreme and, and not something someone would reasonably draw from even that ridiculous proposition that he's putting forth. And then his like, you know, like singular reaction to saying, yep, that's exactly what would happen is also entirely inhuman and, and would yeah. not be any realistic portrayal of it. Uh, and, and it's just, it's, it's very, and her character even prior to that is poorly written and their awkward, like flirtatious interactions are, are kind of like forced and, and, mm-hmm. un, you know, uh, very like kind of wonky. Well, I was going to say that that takes nothing away from the movie in a way I thought it would. They are the weakest parts, but I'm not going to like knock the movie down a few points or uh, it didn't like subject me to like some pain that was like, Oh God, you know? Yeah. It's not, it's, it's not a debilitating issue with the movie, but it's a, it's a regrettable uh, movie is perfect. Every movie has like its its problems. Yeah. And, and I think this, this one's a, a more, glaring one at least when it comes to the writing um i I wish it were better because they are important parts of the movie you can't you just cut them out uh as as much as you might desire to they're they're important facets but they're not as strongly written as they should be and and it kind of dampens the impact of that because there, there is a certain kind of like sleekness to the film that uh, is is both a, a very pro aspect of it and that it kind of just moves and it has this very, you know, strong focused idea of what it wants to be and say. But at the same time, that means that, you know, certain elements aren't as entirely fleshed out as they should be. Like those, something, those parts. Yeah, something about having those parts not matter and be like just that background thing, I think is, uh, I, I don't think it's to the film's detriment. I, I think it's the, fine. The film and- it- it couldn't work if they were human. I, I don't think the film is work. tight. Uh, the film it's tight to a point of transparency in some ways because I don't agree almost, with that. I, I I think a little bit is that like kind of like you can see the structure in some ways, which isn't again like I said, it's not a debilitating issue, but it's something I I, I noticed when watching that you have okay now bones are pretty evident, right? Like it moves yeah. on a very yeah singular track. I agree with, with that part. Yeah, I don't and think you it's can, transparent. Though. 
Uh, well, I, I mean transparent in the sense that you can see the the, the structure. The structure. You can see yeah. how how this scene needs to be here to develop this part, or this needs to come at this time. You know, it's time for this moment to happen in, in that manner. Not that again, it's there are lots of movies where it's like that. I would also say, you know, there's a lot of Hitchcock movies maybe that where where you know you can see that because that's yeah. his scene. His movies are very structured, very you know apparent following that. But anyway. A lot of these are like they're they're broader issues with the film that don't overshadow the technical, uh, you know, br brilliance that kind of is being displayed in a lot of the sequences here. The 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 first scene where he's, uh, you know, where where he's uh, Andrew's brought into you know the Fletcher's class and he's got to you know they they have the whole build up where he's watching how the the class is being conducted the first time and where he's uh, just this very like like aggressive you know attacking behavior in this regimented you know approach to to the studio band is is a marvelously crafted scene it's it's you know it's very kind of like intimidating very crisp you know uh to to the note and it's uh you know harrowing in, in, in some ways in the way it kind of builds up the tension absolutely i think that movie just has the whole i think that's inherent in its structure and that his performance really conveys that at every scene. He is very intimidating, but um, he also has his up and downs. It is, as the title in the song implies, like whiplash, and it moves like that song does. It becomes violent like that song does. Uh, it feels like that drumming does in a lot of places. I think the title is a little corny, but you also I, re I really I like, like it. Like I, li like, I like song, how it... Though. I, mean, I, I know, but it's not just the song, but also how like it yeah. reflects the car crash, and that's an important element of it too. Right. And it's it's a it's a little cheeky like that, but I also like that it <laughs> it reflects that. It's a very fitting title, but almost like too fitting and, and, and too reflective in, in ways. Again, like I don't I don't mean it as like a critique. I'm just like kind of like an observation. I'm like, oh, that's a little obvious, but also clever. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I like that about it. I like that it, it it at least lives within that song. I agree that car crash might be. That might be a point where it's too much for me and I don't need the car crash, but well, the, the I car crash it is, is to his... it's again, it's, it's like, I it's an like important, it. it's an important moment. It has yeah. to happen. Like you have to have car this, crash this down. Well, I, something like it, you yeah. have to, as, as a plot beat, you need this to happen. You need things to come entirely crashing down for, for Andrew. You need to have, I just this, don't need that literal, right? Like that, well, that's the thing. That's, that's part of the issue with it. And that's what I mean as well. When I say sometimes it's a little too tight, a little too, obvious in ways and that it's it's to a point of being like very you know overt like yeah oh oh he got into a car crash hey it's just like that you know the the other student of him it's this very obvious echo you know well it's like all right it looks <laughs> I, I get it it looks like jazz sounds and the movie kind of lives within those songs but also yeah it could use more like improvisational feeling too where it's uh, kind of just playing within its own world and allowing more space characters to get around things and and to convey that more personally through his development rather than you know the hardness of a car crash that's disconnected from the performance i think that's a very good point that, that you bring up there that, that probably something i hadn't put into words before is that for all the ways that the film does look and feel like a very frenetic jazz uh composition it is a little too regimented and too within the lines to feel improvisational, like a truly, you know, beautiful piece of, of, of jazz. I think that's, that's very true. I think it would be better too, if the people were allowed to like work off each other and, you know, and I think if, if it felt like a jazz performance more of the time, other than the ending, which beautifully does. The, the ending is, is a terrific again, like, uh, 
not again, not in like a free form kind of way, in a in a very regimented, very well calculated kind of way. It's it's edited together beautifully. The I think the the score or not, I guess not the score. Yeah, the, score. The sure. Score, sound design, the music aspect, how the way it conveys the the music is one of the big highlights of the film. Maybe just just from like the start of like the pieces of music that you selected here, Whiplash and Caravan, are these two really great, high energy, intensive uh, songs that really carry the rhythm of the film, I think. Yeah. And their reincorporation throughout is is very terrific. Uh, Better than La La Land. <laughs> uh, absolutely. They're, that repetition they're, is so annoying. Yeah. Uh, it's, so it's weird. I feel like we're, we're lobbying a lot of like, overt issues or, or making well, some complaints with the film but but not like really that hard they're they're more like observations on yeah. the ways the film could be like like better or more representative of a subject while also piling on like lo- laudable comments on it i think uh it's it's hard to take away from how fantastic and embodied uh jk simmons's uh, performances it's hard to not you know overly commend uh, Miles, Miles Teller's Teller, ab- yeah. absolute, uh, you know, involvement in the role, which is something I don't think he's achieved since then. I don't think Miles Teller's has proven himself to be as capable an actor ever since no. his role. Uh, I, you know, it's hard to take away from the the amazing way that the film is kind of stitched together. All the the interesting moving shots. There's like a great moment where where he's got these crane movements, these cameras, like the first time in the in the studio band session, and everything's very still, and and the camera just whips around and comes around jk simmons as he's got his hand here and the focus changes to come up to his hand and it's this very slight movement all done in one shot and it's uh very well coordinated like that and you've got lots of scenes like that in the end as well which lots of you know quick cuts away to, to certain reactions or close-ups and stuff it's, it's 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 a little hard to articulate how much the uh the editing because it is so frenetic it goes by so fast almost it's hard to kind of keep up with some moments to talk about it but it's it's very well timed to the music and and the particular choice of shots match what's going on musically uh superlatively there's such good attention to instruments too and the shots of the instruments um the shots of just like a cymbal roll or like a inside the drum when you kick the snare on that that like beautiful moment where it saves those for just the uh most precise moment in the film where that represents that instrument and where it's like you know like clearing the flute and like having the spit drop to the yeah, floor yeah a great great yeah. demonstration of how messy how gross yeah. uh you know music you know perform uh you know instruments can be um you know i love it, that it it's not romanticizing it. it it never gets to that like disneyfication of it's oh, in, I, it's I, intense I yeah. Uh, yeah, again there's see like all of the all of the blisters you see and everything, yeah. the blood that gets over the the drum set with how intense this is. You know, you get the sense that this is incredibly taxed like the scene where they're like practicing where where they're they're having the circling out the three drummers, you know, just for hours and they're just caked in fucking sweat and like there's a singer and he's like screaming where he's like fucking <laughs> slamming away at the the symbol just trying to keep time. And he's throwing shit at the wall and he takes one of the toms and throws it the other way and then uh, and then he finally gets through and he's like yeah uh to the extras he's like yeah clean up the blood off my drums. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh I I guess that's another interesting question. Like, uh, you know, it's an interesting aspect of Fletcher's character is that he's such an intense individual, almost like, again, like the obvious parallels, like a drill instructor, basically, like Arlie mm-hmm. Ermey had a full metal jacket. But it's never quite like cartoonish enough, even though no. he says some 
insanely brash things. Uh, th things have changed since 2015. Obviously, there's there's a lot of vocabulary, you know, used by Fletcher that you know maybe certain people wouldn't be as all right with. But I don't think it it ever kind of rubs the wrong way, even though he'll throw out you know very uh, overt slurs. Uh, it's it's suited to the character and makes sense. Although there, there's a couple times where some of his insults just don't make any sense. <laughs> they're just they're just inflammatory and and it's effective. But like if you take a second think about it, like what the fuck does even that mean? <laughs> yeah, um, uh, he, I mean he has good ones, but also ones that are homophobic. Like a that's not your boyfriend's dick, so don't come too early. Yeah, that's why the one doesn't make sense. Like, why would yeah. he come early if he's blowing the, the guy? What? But obviously, it's just meant to be like an inflammatory and incendiary, right. and it's it's effective, and it, particularly because that's like the first one, and it comes very abruptly uh, in in the session there, and and it gives you a sense of what his character is, and I think it's it's implemented well. You know, despite maybe some issues someone might have with it modernly, I don't know. I don't yeah. think anyone's going to go after this movie. For I don't think it. I don't think it has that homophobic issue. text. It's, They'll it's see obviously... why he did it, right? Like, I, I think my favorite part with Fletcher is when he's breaking people down in the in the group uh, because he deconstructs like the parts of the band, right? Uh, he's going around seeing who's uh, off tune. And I think that's so important the way that it builds his relationship with everyone who's been there, and uh, you know, anyone's expendable if they're off tune. Um, so there's a fucking Mars bar down there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's, he's got commentary too. Yeah. He's got some good good quips, and again, it's it's really easy to like J.K. Simmons's performance because it is so you know kind of uh, over the top, but also you know full of like like nuance and purpose. It's not just hammy. Um, but yeah, I, I would say that scene in particular is probably one of the big highlights of the film, where he's going through and you know like really demonstrating for the first time his his regiment and his ruthlessness with his band it's so believable if you've ever been in a studio band room too like just the construction of it and how alive that feels to uh, i mean I, I felt that experience where you're like going through and like picking apart the problem of the band and the pressure and and also you know getting replaced on a song that you really like has happened yeah replacing someone on a song that they really liked and and how that feels i mean i've, I've lived both those parts and it doesn't feel good either way I guess I guess one of the only questions you have is like, how does this school function? Like that—that that was something I thought about this time. <laughs> yeah. Is that like, if if you want to just like take a step back and, and kind of take yourself out of the movie for a second and think about it from a logistical standpoint, it, it's hard to kind of wrap your head around because it is like I said, the film is streamlined, so it doesn't concern you much with what's going on. Because at a certain point, like you have all three, uh, all the drummers in the school in this one band. Mm -hmm. What what happened? Like when they take Connolly out of the other class to provide competition for Neiman. What's the other band doing? They don't have a drummer now. Uh, right. is, how is this band functioning? Did they find someone else? Uh, I don't I don't know. Uh, I'm kind of curious to know. Um, and also just like the the approach to this in general, like it's, it's any wonder why Fletcher didn't get fired way before he does. Like why, why is everyone so committed to him that nobody like went either way, you know, especially when they, when they throw out someone like, you know, the other guy there for, just as you know the, the vile language but again this this is all just like kind of commentary like, like not not even nitpicking because i don't mean this in like a negative sense I, i'm genuinely curious how does this school function not but not in the sense that i want the film to explain it because that would be you know like pedantic and getting into details yeah. of the world that you really don't need uh it's perfectly fine the way it is i'm just personally curious as to 
the more more background on this. If I can get like a like give me like a spin-off series of the Schaefer Conservatory uh Chazelle, like maybe like a six-part Netflix series where we go through the school, you know, and and, and kind of get like some background, maybe like a a, a precursor to this. We'll see yeah. kind of like uh Fletcher's establishment is a uh teacher here and his and his rise to becoming, you know, this kind call of notorious a, figure. Call it Caravan, the Damien Chazelle <laughs> six episode. I'd watch it. I'd watch it. This is, this think, is not a serious pitch, by the way. Please, no Netflix people out there, do not listen to me. This but also, not... if you make it, I'll watch it. So maybe <laughs> yes, that, but see. also that, yes. Yeah. Uh, I guess something else should be said that this was uh, one of those films that was, you know, had to be greenlit by making a kind of test version of it first with a short film, uh, which was basically just like the first 20 minutes or so of the movie, uh, you know, filmed and, and released. And that kind of got the buzz going as one of those cases. Uh, which is interesting. This is also a, a it's a Blumhouse film, which I hadn't realized until I watched it again this time and I saw the Blumhouse logo. Uh, I was I was very surprised to see that because they're kind of just they just mostly do horror stuff now, right? Uh, they they kind of carved out that niche since I think Get Out was the thing that kind of really blew them up, blew out yeah. blew piece of Blum there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they they have a not so much diverse <laughs> portfolio now, but yeah. So it was it was interesting to see that that. At one point, they had big, you know, kind of prestige pictures like this. You know, this was very big in 2014, you know, when it came out. And one that uh, could uh, compete with awards, too. Like, that that was yeah. a, a claim in awards. And... It's it's one of the few times where I'm like, yeah, J.K. Simmons definitely deserved that Oscar. Good job, yeah. guys. You, you gave it to the right person this year. Uh, I agree. I, I, I think it stands still as one of the best films from the, the decade, one of the best American films, certainly. Um overall it's just i think it's, it's still very impressive kinetic uh very entertaining and, and and sleek and musically uh invigorating uh you know but obviously w- w- with a few caveats you know just, mm-hmm. it's like ex- expected caveats not everything can be perfect no and in, in in some ways that it's not perfect i think it still contributes to what it's trying to do so for me very uh expert conveyance of what jazz feels like and and sounds like but uh not in every way. Um, in some ways, that I think we've deconstructed. I think it, it could use a couple of things to to really become a ten out of ten movie. Yeah, so fucking close. But it, it is. It's, it's very close. It's it's very close. It's a it's an incredibly impressive effort, especially for a first feature. Oh yeah, uh, that's incredible. For, particularly, yeah, like especially again, like the the direction, uh, you know, is is very uh, prominent and and very laudable. I think. Um, not not a whole lot of complaints from Giselle's filmmaking standpoint there, which again, just I don't know what happened afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> I'm um it's one of the great mysteries of, of modern cinema. <laughs> well, I can't tell any longer if we're dragging or rushing. Um what are we we're probably been- dragging a bit. This has been a, a lengthier podcast, but I hope people enjoy that. Uh, I like to listen to lengthy podcasts, so whenever we run a little long, I I, I give myself a little pat on the back. Next week we'll be uh rushing with uh, the last weekend. Yes, we're going back to the, the classics. Um, this one I, I'm very excited for because I know you've Me got too. a very personal connection for it. Yeah, I'm excited so, to talk about quite also, a few things there. More, more excited, more Billy Wilder films. Always down for that. Billy Wilder is a fa- favorite filmmaker? Maybe. I right, kind of go back and forth. I'm going to say yes for now. Billy Wilder is uh, David endorsed. You're dragging. Okay. You want to <laughs> read us out now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. On my All cue. Right. <laughs> 
Thanks everyone for tuning in this week. Make sure as always check out our website at twingeeks.com for our latest reviews, retrospectives, and features. You can follow us on Twitter as well at the Twin Geeks and individually at Calvin Kemp and that David Dave Punch. Don't forget to check out our sister video game show, the Daydream Cast with Pavel's and Brogan, and available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts and play the review rating. If you can, and we'll see you next week for another conversation on content. Bye.